0: This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Those of us who love games like Dungeons and Dragons or Settlers of Catan don't love the stereotypes about who we are. One of the most enduring stereotypes about these gamers is that they're all white men, but a new generation of players is correcting that image and the misunderstanding of game history at its
1: core. Today, we have a little bit of a different story where we do have a sort of different environment and people are starting to generate uh, role-playing games and tabletop games that are authentically from the cultures that they come from. The Privilege of Play, coming up on A Word
0: with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. When someone talks about playing Dungeons and Dragons, what do you picture and who do you picture sitting around the table? Is it a bunch of guys in their late teens and early 20s? Are they all dressed in sweats and grubby t shirts? Did it look like the comic book guy from The Simpsons? And of course, are they all white? The comedy series Key and Peel played off this stereotype in their sketch when hip hop and Dungeons and Dragons collide. Uh, greetings, adventurers. Greetings. greetings. As you all can see here, we have a new traveler in our ranks. Uh, this is my cousin Tyrell, and he will be controlling the player character. His name is Kanye. Mm-hmm. He's a giant, yo. Oh. <laughs> uh, dear cousin, <laughs> traditionally, a, a, a giant is not assumed by a player, it is a chaotic evil. Yeah, but I C- want to be a giant, yo. I'll be big. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, travelers, you are joined on your adventure today by a giant named Kanye. <laughs> now, when last we left you, you were at the Inn of the North Star in the town of Isildur. How do you begin your adventure? I want to get some bitches. We're the club at Isildur, yeah? Tyrell, this is highly unusual. I think the guys probably just want to go on the quest that um, you've already... Steven? Yes?
1: I'd like to join Kanye the giant in this quest.
0: Seriously? It's not an accident that role-playing games and whiteness become so connected in American pop culture lore, but that's never been the complete picture, and black players are stepping up now to claim their place at the gaming table. Joining us to talk more about it is Aaron Trammell. He's the author of the new book, The Privilege of Play, a history of hobby, games, race, and geek culture. He's also a professor of informatics and visual studies at UC Irvine and the editor of a scholarly journal of analog games. Aaron Trammell, welcome to A Word. Hi, it's really nice to be here. I'm going to start this off by saying I was never a huge D&D person uh, or World of Warcraft or anything else like that. My older brother was the first person who took me through a whole dungeon when I was a kid, and I didn't like it because there weren't any action figures involved. One of the things that I want you to sort of tackle first is how do we talk about gaming, right? A lot of people in their heads, they think of gaming and they think of things that are digital, but you're talking a lot about analog games, about things where there's a die, there's a piece that you move back and forth. Can you sort of briefly explain what the gaming world is that doesn't require you to plug something in?
1: That's a a really wonderful question. Um, so I'd say in the past like 20 or 30 years, there's been this like reemergence of board games on an international level to the point that some of the the world's biggest Kickstarters right now, in fact, the biggest Kickstarters right now have been really just in the board game community because it's um, been really thriving in that area. So it's a huge emerging market around tabletop games. And that's not to to even get into the stuff that comes out of one company called wizards of the coast this is the company that produces magic the gathering and dungeons and dragons they also have been one of the the largest market shareholders for gaming in general so there's been this huge sort of renaissance around board games and tabletop games in the last 30 years basically And it's really exciting. If you are a gamer and you're someone who likes to play games, this is where the action is right now. It's what I research, and I'm really happy to talk about it. For your average
0: person out there, there's probably only two kind of bored fantasy games they know of. There's either like Cones of Dunshire, or there's Dungeons and Dragons, and you know, for many people, Dungeons and Dragons is sort of in their head, not just because there's been a recent movie, but because they've watched Stranger Things. It's associated with sort of the 80s and 80s nostalgia. But a lot of people have still actually never played Dungeons and Dragons, don't really know the history of it. What is Dungeons and Dragons? And second, How did that become so ensconced in white culture? I mean, everybody didn't see E.T. at the same time, right? And yet we associate Dungeons & Dragons with
1: white nerds sitting around a table. So Dungeons & Dragons is a role-playing game. And what that means is that you, the player, take the role of one of the characters on the table. So it's not like Monopoly where you're like, well, I'm that car on the table moving around the board. Instead, you're supposed to be in the first person. You're like, I open the door, I swing my sword. I fight the monster and it's a role-playing game that puts you in sort of like the cockpit of a character and you roll dice to figure out what happens during the game. And so that's what Dungeons and Dragons is. It's been around since the 1970s. It's about to celebrate its 50th year anniversary next year. It's become really, really popular and ensconced in pop culture, specifically this last 10 years. It's been crazy how much popular culture has begun to revolve around this one game. So that's what it is. Now, how did it get ensconced with white culture? That's a different question. And the answer to that question is basically historical. You have to go back and look at the communities at the time who developed it and played it. And these communities, if you go back in time, were predominantly white communities. Um, That's not to say there weren't black people in these communities. There definitely were black people and some people of color playing in these communities. But on a whole, these communities were predominantly and overwhelmingly white. And so as these communities developed, the game took things that they took for granted about their culture and basically boiled them down into the game's rules, like things like an appreciation of Tolkien and sword and sorcery fiction. Uh, That's like Conan the Barbarian and Tolkien, you know, for those of you not in the know, is Lord of the Rings. And these stories, these ideas uh, got boiled down into the game's uh, rules and basically became what we call in Game Studies, which is the field I work in, the mechanics of Dungeons & Dragons.
0: One of my favorite books is Black Technopoetics, and it talks about how notions of gender and sexuality are moved into technology, and we don't even think about it, right? We talk about male and female ports and things like that, and it just becomes something that you think. What you're basically saying is Dungeons & Dragons is the same way. If everything is based on knights, and, and dragons, and a conception of dragons that comes specifically from Europe, right? I mean, there are dragons in African folklore. There are dragons in Asian folklore. But it was all sort of driven by these notions of, of European spaces. I guess my question is, you know, if you look at the history of Dungeons and & Dragons and you look at the history of some of these fantasy board games, was there ever a point where someone decided, even just for financial purposes— hey, maybe if we don't base these exclusively on European fantasy ideas, we could make more money. Maybe if we base these Arabian Nights, hey, we have the god Anansi. What was the point at which gaming started to realize that you could use and mine other cultures in order to put together these board games?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So the first answer I have is relatively early. So very early on in the history of games like Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop games, The developers of the games uh, were really excited, actually, to explore other cultures. It was seen as like a really exciting, and I'm going to use scare quotes, exotic location um, that people go and kind of adventure in. Uh, There is a sort of infamous supplement for Dungeons & Dragons called Oriental Adventures that invited people into uh, whatever it is they defined as the Orient, um, typically a hodgepodge between... Uh, the Far East and the Middle East and basically most of Asia, which is the problem with that term itself. So yeah, early on, it was the 1970s. People didn't have the sort of media environment they have today where they can just turn on the TV and find like a 100 fantasy shows on at the same time to, to kind of indulge their, their desire to, to escape into fantasy. And so when the designers and creators of things like Dungeons & Dragons went out to sort of plume other cultures for inspiration. The other cultures were there and they were very easily able to appropriate ideas from these cultures and pull them into their game. But of course, they didn't do it well because these were predominantly white people trying to say that they had this sort of expert knowledge in these other cultures. And well, you know, as we know now in the 21st century, uh, these stories are often best told by people who came up natively through the cultures themselves. So, um, So that was kind of a problematic take on it. Um, That said, today we have a little bit of a different story where we do have a sort of different environment and people are starting to generate um, uh, role playing games and tabletop games that are authentically from the cultures that they come from. One really, really cool example is Tanya DePass and D- B. Dave Walters have a role-playing game called Into the Motherlands, and that's an Afrofuturist role-playing game, which is like super-duper exciting. Cyberpunk 2020, which was developed in the 80s by Mike Pondsmith, who is also a black designer, uh, really did an amazing job, you know, authentically creating sort of his worldview of a sort of futuristic San Francisco when he uh, developed that game. So it was just a really, really cool example of the sort of amazing works that black people and people of color can come up with when we create in this space. So there is games now coming out that do this. And and the last one I'll talk about is, um, there's a recent supplement um, from Wizards of the Coast called Journey uh, for Dungeons and Dragons called Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. It's a bunch of adventures, and each adventure has been written by a different black, indigenous, or person of color, basically. So it's an exciting time to be um, watching the community basically develop in this space because the stuff that's getting developed is really interesting, really good, and it's telling stories that hadn't been told before through authentic voices.
0: One of the things that always interests me is that we look at the original IPs of lots of different things that get turned into larger pop-cultural events and they get whitewashed, right? So, for example... Marvel Comics are pretty diverse. It took a while for the movies to start looking diverse. DC Comics have never been diverse, but, you know, they put out Static Shock, and that was more popular than anything they had had in years. When I look at gaming, I think about the fact that it's a lot of sort of swords and sorcery, right? And yet, the most popular incarnation of that sort of fantasy, we end up with garbage like Game of Thrones. And that's right. I said it's garbage. Uh, or we get you know or we get the new Dungeons and Dragons movie which is significantly more diverse than the original one that came out almost 30 years ago do you think that the culture or the way in which these IPs about these games are changed in Hollywood or on television is one of the reasons why we also don't get a lot of black people being interested because when they see the sword and sorcery when they see the Magic the Gathering, heck, when they see a bunch of people in mechs, they don't necessarily see black or brown folks, and they figure, eh, I don't really care about the source material.
1: I absolutely think that that is the case. Um, I I know for myself, um, you know, growing up playing these games um, and uh, thinking about these games, it was always disappointing to not see people who look like me in the games that I played. And, um, when I did see black people, they weren't black people who wore the things that I would generally, you know, wear as a sort of suburban teen playing these games. I am the end of the market that's excited about the games, So I, I played the games uh, in this sort of excited way. But I think for a lot of people, you know, if they don't see themselves in a game, um, it's disappointing. There's been some really great research on the topic. There's... Um, a researcher at Temple University named Adri- Adrienne Shaw, she wrote a whole book called Gaming at the Edge, which is about how people from minoritized sexual sexualities, um, genders, and racial positions come to play games. And in that book, you know, the research is clear. You know, people do prefer to play games with presentations um, that remind me of them, but it's a preference. So they will absolutely play and enjoy games. Uh, with people that that don't look like them also. But the preference remains there, and people get angry, and over time it's frustrating.
0: We're gonna take a short break, and we come back
1: more on the history of
0: race, play, and gaming with Professor Aaron Trammell. This is Word with Jason Johnson, stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about race and gaming with Professor Aaron Trammell. So most times when you're an academic, it's the same thing with me when I was getting my doctorate. You end up doing your research because of your own interests intellectually, your own sort of life experience. Um how did you start this? Like, did you did you just you know, did you did you did you gain forty pounds and get yourself a messy T-shirt with pizza stains and hang out at gaming places <laughs> around Irvine? Um, you know, did you did you travel around the country and just sort of interview people? Because I, I'm fascinated as to kind of how you did the field work to do these kinds of studies about Black gamers, or did did you just find people online? You know, and they told you about what their experiences were like. In racing Wisconsin and suburban Chicago and, and outside of Atlanta?
1: That's a great question. Um, yeah. So first of all, um, I did my doctorate at Rutgers University. So I'm, I'm East Coast and I was born in New Jersey. So I have to say that I'm always excited to, to nerd out about pizza and subs and um, the things that the Garden State provides. When I did my doctorate, and as a researcher, I'm a historian, and so what that means is when I do my research, I go to archives. So I'll travel to institutions and places that have collections of letters and books and magazines um, from different historical periods of time. And so when I was doing this research uh, about 10 years ago, I traveled to Bowling Green State University, that's in Ohio, they've got one of the world's largest popular culture archives, lots and lots of fanzines, people um, playing games that I could. Um, I also ta- traveled to, this is wild, but the RAND Corporation, which is a military think tank in LA. And I traveled there because in the 1950s, they were doing experiments on, with role-playing games as a way to prevent actually nuclear war. Um, and so I was reading through those documents to kind of learn Uh, That And then also there's lots of materials on role-playing games floating around on the internet, lots of uh, magazine archives uh, for old gaming magazines. And so I was kind of collecting those and reading through those also. And so when I did the research, it was kind of triangulating all of this historical material to get a picture of how role-playing games, tabletop games more broadly, uh, were kind of sitting in the cultural milieu in the 1960s and 1970s. But there was one problem And the problem was when I was doing this research and I was reading it all, um, I couldn't place where black people uh, were in the story. And this was, you know, really troubling because this was a story and part of the story that was important to me, especially as a black person, but also a story I wanted to tell. Like I wanted to amplify the voices of gamers who hadn't been amplified historically, and it was just really hard to find them. And so uh, it wasn't until actually very recently with the sort of like resurgence of the conversation around Black Lives Matter uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder that I was able to kind of put the pieces together and figure out that that absence was really important. And then I started researching it. I was like, okay, well, where were the people who are playing the games? And it started to become this really interesting story that, that came together around white flight and why um, the sort of game stores that were being developed in the 60s and 70s just happened to be in these white areas um, because the white people were fleeing to the suburbs and there was a concentration of people in those areas. And the only times that you had an exception, like uh, people really playing in urban areas in the 60s and 70s, which were you know notably more racially diverse, you had the exception because there were people at college and these people at college would go Uh, play in these areas and then they'd travel back to a different place in the suburbs and continue to play their games there. And that became this really interesting story of exclusion and why you had some people who were included in these uh, tabletop gaming communities and some people who weren't. I think about it in terms of I I love
0: how you connect sort of the black exclusion in in gaming from, from white flight and these sort of larger economic issues, because I always think of it in a more practical way. If you are a community that, because of redlining, because of housing discrimination and everything else like that, is primarily urban, the manner in which you play tabletop games requires, how many movies have we seen this in? It's a big basement in some suburban kid's house. You need space to be a gamer. What I'm also curious about, though, and thinking of that is, how have you seen gaming evolve? Because now that you do have people who are playing from all walks of life, right, you do have more black people, you do have more brown people, how has the gameplay itself changed? Do you see, have the figures gotten smaller? Uh, do the tables open up in different spaces? Do you see more games being played at a shop on a regular basis, right? You know, Is it like, hey, we have now have tabletop gaming clubs at schools because kids don't have the space at home. How have you seen play evolve because more people of color have gotten involved?
1: Well, the first thing I'm gonna say is I, I think that more now than before in the 70s, games come in a box. So one thing that I learned in my research is that people who play a lot of um, tabletop games call that play the hobby, like in quotes as if there was no other hobby in the world. If you're talking about the, the hobby, it's talking about gaming. Um, and so when you're talking about the hobby and that, you know, it's a, more than just like buying the Dungeons and Dragons manual, it's buying the miniatures, it's buying the maps, it's making some terrain, writing down the story. And all these things, like you just said, take time and they take money and they take space because the hobby, is a really, really detailed thing. It comes from the sort of history we have of model trains and model train hobbies. Uh, These are hobbyists who used to really tinker and build uh, uh, their hobby, but they needed tons of space to do it. So this has always been a sort of suburban phenomena where people had space to, to perform the hobby. And when it wasn't, it was a time when urban space was less at a premium than it was today. But going forward to today, one thing that's actually really different is that you can buy all of this and you can get your game in a box. So this is something that uh, that's really important that happens with board games is that board games, um, you open the box up and everything you need to have that wonderful game of yours is in that box and can be packed back up into the box. And given the sort of like resurgence of board games this last 20 years, that makes it a lot easier for urban gamers and people who don't have a ton of space to unpack the box, have a fun game night, and put it back together, and then put the box on the shelf or in a closet somewhere in their house than it did before when these things, at least if you wanted to play the way the manual suggested with lots of miniatures and uh, terrain and stuff like that, you need a lot of space for that. How is it that Black gamers,
0: even despite the sort of influence of the church and the Black community, how is it that gaming has not become this sort of cultural flashpoint the way it has in the white community? Because I've never heard somebody, I've never heard a black parent say, I'm worried about my daughter playing with mech action figures and moving them around. Most black parents I know are thrilled that their kids are doing something that requires reading and it doesn't have them looking at a screen. So why do you think it hasn't become that
1: kind of issue in the black community? Shooting from the hip, the first thing that I would say about the black community and the reasons that the black community might not be as upset about this is that I, I don't know if the Black community teaches itself to be as precious about what youth is and what um, the morality of youth is. We come from a tradition, at least in the United States, where our freedom has been hard won. Um, and uh, the fact that, um, you know, we can play games um, and enjoy uh, some parts of life uh, that, that have historically been privileged is, uh, is I think uh nice right like it's it's a good thing overall and so i i just wouldn't be surprised if a lot of black parents are like yeah this they're their kids having fun like (laughs) let them have fun basically that's my my first instinct um but the other thing i want to say about all these other media panics that have kind of come up around games just in in general uh no one no one has in a serious research context um believe that like these sort of media violence narratives actually Uh, do stem from games. They've been widely discredited in the field of media studies. And so, I don't know, maybe black folks have just always been in the know. (laughs) They could could tell when someone's trying to sell them some snake oil. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the answer either.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more about race and role-playing games with Professor Aaron Trammell. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at aword@slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about race and role-playing games with author and professor Aaron Trammell. It's interesting because you talk in your last answer and you talk about in your research how the very idea of black people having hobbies or playing games is complicated by racism. Explain a little bit about that. Explain why black folk having a hobby
1: is affected by racism. That's the core of my book, The Privilege of Play, is about this topic. um, Why uh, black folk uh, having a hobby might be affected by racism The easy answer to that is that, historically, uh, games and play and leisure time, access to leisure, has been something that has been a privileged thing to have. And so you've had to have time, money, energy, space, all these different things um, to make time in your life to basically play games and to enjoy games. And so you look and you watch over the course of the 20th century, how these hobbyist communities really develop in white areas because these are areas where people have access to time, space, money, and all the things that you would need to foster these hobbies. Well, black people, A, weren't necessarily living side by side to these white people in these communities because of segregation over the course of the 20th century. Um, It was uh, something that they might not have just had that friend down the street to kind of pull them into the game. So that was one of the complicated things. And then the other thing is that some of these white communities, honestly, um, used white supremacist tactics to keep black people out of the conversations. There were absolutely game companies that would put like pictures of Hitler on the front of their magazine with titles like, Who Really Started World War II? And I don't know, uh, for a lot of black people, that's not going to be a really comforting uh, thing to read. Uh, That same magazine, this is Avalon Hill General, uh, which was in the 60s, the magazine that a wargaming company called Avalon Hill used to advertise and promote its products. The Avalon Hill General, the very first issue starts with this whole narrative about them naming the company Avalon Hill because it sits up on top of a hill in Baltimore overlooking a genteel plantation. And I don't know if... I don't know what kind of black person is ever going to read that and say, like, this is a community that wants me to be a part of it. Um, Right. That's a dog whistle. That's that's calling back to the sort of good old days of plantation work in the south. And so um, a lot of this was also coded into the, the, the gaming community historically. And it wasn't that black people didn't play. They still did. It just was that a lot of them didn't. And so it's taken about a century to sort of overcome this sort of uh, racism that's really been part of hobbies and hobby games. And fortunately, right now, we're, we're starting to get to a point where things are changing and things are happening.
0: When I think of some games that are... Uh you know, maybe they, they have an IP version, they have a tabletop version, then there's like a video game version or a PC version, then it turns into movies. I think of of prominent people who have who've been associated with gaming. Um I think of the recently passed Lance Reddick. All I have to do to make them end you is to tell them you have a fancy new gun, or that Eris can make you into one. So think about that before you tell us to bow to your sorry ass a lot of gamers knew him right they they knew of him they associated him with different kinds of games what are some big names in tabletop gaming you know are there big black names in tabletop gaming either creators or voices or you know, very popular gamers who, you know, everybody goes to see their panel at San Diego Comic-Con, who
1: might some of those people be? There's Mike Pondsmith who created Cyberpunk 2020, which is what the whole cyberpunk idea um, is is based off of. There's also uh, Tanya DePass and B. Dave Walters who have this great Afrofuturist role-playing game uh, coming out. And they also do a sort of Dungeons and Dragons game called Actual Play that they um, they put online. Uh, Another really amazing tabletop game designer um, who is black is Eric Lang. Eric Lang is a board game designer, and uh, he has been responsible for creating some of the most amazing board games that you've seen over the last 10 years. Games like war games, but war games that really, really remix culture in interesting ways. So yeah, Eric Lang's designs are amazing. He's he's often at um, gaming conventions. He's a really good person to see and check out. Um, but then I, I would also say that um, there's, there's smaller designers too that work in indie spaces, and these spaces are equally important. There's Julia bond Ellingbow, She wrote an amazing game called Steelway Jur- Jordan, which is a role-playing game where you play an American slave um, uh, on the run from uh, plantation owners and stuff in the, the 19th century. Uh, that's an amazing uh, role-playing game. Uh, you also have smaller designers like Omari Akil, Um, who has written a game called, like, Rap Gods and Hoop Gods, and he's really bringing a sort of urban aesthetic to tabletop gaming, which is so much based on the sort of, like, European aesthetics of, like, fishing and trading and stuff like that, that it's really exciting to see some color in that, um, the way he he does it. Uh, So a lot of really amazing stuff is also happening in the indie space, and that stuff... Um, often informs and trickles up to uh, what's happening in the the major space. In fact, I'd say with the tabletop gaming industry, that's often where the radical and exciting new ideas come from.
0: I always like to end the interview with either like a call to action or something for people to do or some way for people to get involved. So if somebody is interested in gaming... I know there's different entry points for it, right? Because I know some people who get into gaming because it's a way to spend time with their family, right? There's other people who want to get into gaming. Hey, I'm in my 20s. I moved to a new city. You know, I'm not on campus anymore. Where do I find my gaming committee? Or sometimes you're grown single people and you're just like, hey, this seems cool and it'd be a way to meet people. What would you say are the best entry points for those different kinds of people? Like for each of those people, you'd You know, what's the game they should start or what's the organization they should look for if they want to get involved in gaming?
1: So I think that if somebody wants to get involved with gaming, the best thing that they can do is go to their local game store and find a game on the shelf that looks interesting and exciting to them, buy that game uh, and take it home and give it a shot to play it. Nine times out of ten, that game's going to be way too complicated for the person who, who just bought it because there are different levels of uh, rules difficulty in these games. But I, I do think that that kind of the experience of going into a store where gaming products are sold, being in the space, shopping in the space, um, chatting with the, the, the storekeeper there about, you know, games that might be exciting or new, and then uh, leaving the space... I do think that that process is an important process of joining this community. Just familiarizing yourself with like, you made a joke about the comic book guy from The Simpsons, what the Android's dungeon, that was his shop, uh, might look like uh, in real life. I think that's I think that's important, um, and I think that's an important way to get going. But on a more serious level, I do think it's about pulling a group of people together that you want to play games with. Um, I think, that between the people in your group, you'll probably find a way to play that game. And then somebody's gonna be excited to play another game and they're gonna bring that game to the table. And really building that sort of community in to play games with, I really think that's how it happens and that's that's how to get started. I don't think there's a silver bullet for getting started as much as just doing it, getting in there and, and grabbing a game and seeing how it works. And you know, I, I mentioned some people earlier that have made great games. I do think that almost any of the games that they've designed are games that uh, someone could jump in with to see if it's interesting and a world that they might want to explore. Aaron Trammell is author of the new book, The Privilege
0: of Play, a history of hobby, games, race, and geek culture. He's also professor of informatics and visual studies at UC Irvine. Aaron Trammell, thanks so much for joining us today on A Word. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Jason. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.